RTHK. Good morning. It's Friday, October the 20th. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Philip Wong. On today's Back Chat, we're discussing Hong Kong's upcoming ban on single-use plastic tableware. Set to start on April 24th for Earth Day, the first phase of the scheme will forbid catering premises from selling disposable expanded polystyrene tableware, including one-use plastic straws, stirs, cutlery, and plates. Plastic cups and food containers will initially be banned for dine-in before a blanket prohibition takes place around a year later. Complimentary amenities in hotels and aircrafts are to become a thing of the past, in their current form at least. And by 2025, plastic bottled water and toothbrushes will be need to be phased out, with several hotels already having switched to wooden toiletries and glass bottles. And while most legislators agree that stronger eco-friendly measures is the way to go, there are concerns over timing and the cost of alternative materials. And later in the show, we're talking about men and women with wings. Specifically, new registration rules for paragliders. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message here on our Facebook page, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or call us on 233-88266. And if you missed the show, be sure to get it on Spotify. All right, and kicking off to walk us through the new anti-plastic regulations are Dana Winograd, the co-founder and CEO of Plastic Free Seas. Good morning, Dana. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing fine. We're both doing fine, right, Philip? Perfect. Right, fist bump in the studio. Rocking it. <laughs> Leanne Tam, a campaigner for Greenpeace Hong Kong, is also joining us. Good morning, Leanne. Morning. Good morning. So um, uh, we need one of you to walk us through this new legislation, give us the basics. Uh, uh, tell you what, Dana, why don't you uh, kick off and let us know what, what is in the works? Okay, well, we're going to be saying goodbye to a number of plastic items that are regularly used as single use in the food and beverage industry. So we're going to say goodbye to um, straws, to polystyrene lunch boxes and cups, to stir sticks, um, plates, a, a number of other items. There's quite a list, actually. Uh, some will be gone totally, while others will uh, only be gone for dine-in and will later be addressed for takeaway. So we're losing the takeaway ones first or the dine-in No, we're losing first? the dine-in first, okay. but we're losing actually takeaway and dine-in for things like straws, plastic plates, stir sticks, cutlery, all that goes in the first stage. Hmm. That's going to be hard for some restaurants because I know for a long time the regulations were for a lot of places uh, that if you had outdoor seating, you weren't allowed to use regular knives and cutlery. So they're, they're banning the – legally they could only use plastic and now they're telling them no plastic. Well, now they're, they're going to have to look at all these different regulations and how they conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how likely, how, how do you think that's going to work out? I mean, are you, are you working with restaurants in the catering industry? We're not directly. Our main focus is on education in uh, the public sphere. So as education in schools primarily, mm -hmm. but we do, you know, talk to the rest of the sectors uh, as much as we can. But our focus is on making sure that the students, young people and other people, uh, the general public are aware of these and understand the impacts that they have on them. Uh, Dana, you mentioned that it's going to start with dining first before moving on to dining, a takeaway as well. But I just wonder how effective it is starting with dining because I would just assume that most restaurants don't use a lot of plastic cutlery or those kind of things. Do you think it's better just to start off with dining and takeaway right off the bat? Well, some of those items will be dining and takeaway. So your straws, mm -hmm. your plates, the the 
issue with the government or that the government is stating is that it's still a little bit hard for these restaurants to find practical and feasible alternatives for things like food containers and cups. So things that are going to work well, not leak and be cost effective are still a little bit harder to find in the market. So they're easing people into that for the takeaway where you do need more, um, you need it to, to not leak. And so, although I'd love to see it happen more quickly, and I think it is plausible, um, that's the reason by mm. the government. So yeah. at least we've got a certain number of items that are um, are going to be under the band across the board. Now, of course, the goal is not to actually switch to other single-use materials. The goal is to to have reusables whenever possible. So mm. that's one thing that's really lacking in this whole uh, ban, and it doesn't address our waste issue. It only addresses our plastic issue, which is, of course, important as well. Yeah, Philip, you might be surprised. Uh, I remember this has been a couple of years ago. Going into a Starbucks, and they had a sign by the cash register that said, "If you, you know, if you don't, if you need plastic cutlery for takeaway, please ask us. Otherwise, we won't give it to you." Mm-hmm. Then I get my food, and it's all plastic cutlery. <laughs> and I look at her, and I'm like, "I didn't request this. Can I get the not plastic cutlery?" And they're like, "No, we only have plastic." <laughs> so the sign says, you, you know, it's a, "Yeah, whatever." So clearly, there's some gap between their aspirations and their delivery. Uh, Leanne Tam from Greenpeace, what impact? Do you think this is going to have? Is it, is it going to have an impact? Is it going to work? Mm, yeah, I think it's uh, some scale is works. Yeah, but um, maybe we have to look in the reality situation. Most of the restaurant uh, for dining, they already provided the reusable tableware to uh, the customer. Yeah, so Greenpeace think that uh, the government should maybe just have one more step on this, like to promote more reusable tableware. And we think that a borrow and return system, like uh, you can rent the reusable takeaway container from the restaurant, that would be a trend uh, for the East Asia, for the world, and also it will be a good uh, option more convenient option for Hong Kongese to get rid of their single-use uh, items. But I guess it is a good start, isn't it? I mean, to have legislation to, to ban plastic uh, uh, use. I mean, obviously, I guess further on, we need to add more implementations into it. But do you think it's a good start, Leanne? Uh, yeah, it's a good sign. But uh, I do think that the government can do more like to uh, do the reusable uh, promotion. Otherwise, um, I do think the businessman might be only changed to disposable plastic, to disposable bamboo, uh, wood, or other items. Yeah, and and I do think that government should not always say that oh we wait for the alternative in the markets. Uh, Greenpeace think that we can actually uh, put more resources to invest, like we are collaborating with a startup company to uh, invest a uh, rental reusable system like for the citizens uh, conveniently borrow and return the reusable cutlery and i do think that uh, uh the government cannot wait but they have to like input more resources to support it so you know so let me just put a couple of different scenarios out there so if i work uh in central with a fancy schmancy you know office that you set up whether it's a serviced office or my company's got a nice little kitchenette area and they've got all this the cutlery and everything that's great um, if I'm a construction worker who's going to be sitting on a, you know, a piece of concrete having my mm-hmm. lunch, um, what is the answer for those guys? And I mean, I mean, are they are they just going oh. to carry their, carry cutlery around all the time from now on? Is that kind of their new plan? 
Yeah, so so that's why that's why I mentioned that a system to borrow and return. And in Taiwan, it's already doing it. Mm. They will have uh, some startup company. They will provide a reusable lunchbox with the reusable um, uh, fork and spoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you order takeaway, they just deliver it to you. And after a few hours, they will collect it back. Uh, actually, it's a, a real sustainable business and it's growing up in Taiwan. I think Hong Kong can also like take a reference and need more government support and also the enterprise support. Well, I guess to be fair to you know some restaurants, I see a lot of uh, surprisingly uh, a lot of cha cha things. They're more mm. being uh, you know socially responsible in in respect of like not providing people with straws or providing them with those uh, wooden um, biodegradable uh, straws. Um, Dana mentioned mm. it a little bit earlier. You know, a lot of the businesses, the thing, the one thing that they have to look into is obviously the cost. The cost is going to increase, and they have to look at alternatives. Um, so I guess we can start with uh, Leanne first. You know. And also, this is just for restaurants. I mean, what about for like you know regular families? You know, what are the suggestions that you can give to restaurants that they can use, and also you know for families at home? For family at home, you you mean the delivery? Like or? you know, instead of <laughs> if they if if a lot of people some some families or some you know people they might be using single use uh, knives and and forks. So you know if oh. that if there was a ban on that as well, you know what kind of things w- would you suggest for people to buy and for businesses to look at so that they could replace them? Oh yeah and. Um... I do think that like a reusable one would be a better option. Like because it's banned, you cannot uh, buy it uh, in the in the supermarket anymore for the plastic straw items. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. And then I think you can. I think most of our um, office, like they or your house, already equipped with reusable items. So we just uh, use the reusable one at home rather than buying new one. Yeah. Mm. What, what about data? Do you have any suggestions for restaurants and, and people at home? Well, I think hand-in-hand uh, hand with the municipal solid waste charging is going to yeah. also help. First of all, you're not going to be able to buy the single-use uh, cutlery, for example, and straws, mm. like Leanne said. But why would you want to if you're going to have to pay extra to dispose of them anyway? So it's really easy to have your own set of cutlery carried around with you at home, have your picnic set that you're going to take with you every time that you go out so that it just becomes a habit. So we all have our cutlery. We've got a cup. You know, they can be collapsible types that don't take up a lot of space. Every family should invest. And of course, it might seem like an initial investment to buy that reusable cup. But over time, if you were buying lots of single-use cups, that's a cost as well. So it's just a mindset. We need to get people thinking that actually it's it's better for the environment. It's more cost-effective in the long run. That's for the home use. Um, for the restaurants, they're, again, they, they need to look at the material. I think as we increase the volume of these this type of packaging that's being bought in the market, the price is going to go down. So it's not going to be a price issue anymore eventually. It, right now, it's still a more of a niche thing. So the prices are still maybe a little bit higher. But as time goes on, this is going to be the norm. It's going to be high volume and the prices will come down along with it. Um, Dana, yeah. how, do, how do we know prices are going to come down? 
I mean, are, just, you, are you just kind of guessing? Or? No, I, I think that's just market how the market works, right? When you only are able to produce a certain amount and then and there's less competition in the market. But as it becomes more the norm, there's going to be better innovation, more players in the market, um, and higher volumes. And higher volumes generally, I mean, I'm not an economist, but higher volumes generally mean you can do things at a scale and prices come down. But they would have to come down to match the what, what the scale of plastic right now, which is massive. I mean, if, if they have the same volume as the plastic right now, would they, I mean, it doesn't necessarily follow that the cost of making petroleum into plastic at that scale is going to be cheaper than making, say, bamboo or wood at that scale, depending on the inputs, right? Right. But we're seeing, and again, I don't have a specific research to quote, but we're seeing prices are, have already come down. And there's, you know, it's especially if there are some incentives, say, from the government to help push this and increase this. But I'd, I'd say, yes, it's always going to be a bit more expensive to do things properly in an environmentally friendly manner, um, a little bit more expensive, possibly. But we need to accept certain costs. Now, one thing I'd like to mention is that the government pays for waste, right? So the government should be happy to pay towards making sure that we're not creating the waste. In, yeah. So if there was some incentives from the government, it probably would balance out the costs anyway. I guess a good analogy, uh, yeah. I, I hope I'm right in this, are masks and also rats. Mm. Uh, the kits in, uh. Uh, during the COVID, you know, masks back then were like 20 or $30 a pop. But then later on, as they produced more, mm. it became much cheaper. Also, same for the rats. I remember first buying it, it was $80 for one. But afterwards, when they produced a lot more, it was a lot, lot cheaper, twenty twenty five. So I guess we can kind of use that analogy. Yeah, but I think there was more supply demand than production. Mm. I mean, like the masks at the beginning, you know, nobody could get masks. That's why they were so expensive. Mm. Not because they cost more to make, right? True. Maybe. True. Maybe. And same with the rats. Now they're just giving them away. They're like, please, make yeah, them. I, think so. um, I have a couple of emails in. Uh, number one from uh, Marcus says, make it, <laughs> make it apply to airlines too. And phase two, Marcus, it will apply to airlines. And I'm sure we'll get into that in a couple of minutes. Uh, Mike says that the truth is that paper straws are not actually any more environmentally friendly than their plastic counterparts. In fact, it may even be worse for the planet. Try Google and save the government a lot of time and effort. Um, anybody, anyone want to tackle that? I mean, I guess he's alluding to the fact that maybe the manufacturing process leaves a bigger mm -hmm. carbon footprint than for plastic. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe that's what he's thinking. Anybody, uh, Leanne, you want to tackle that? Uh, you mean like, is it paper rather than plastic? Yeah, I mean, in some uh, cases, the the, the alternatives okay. might have a higher, you know, more. They might be more carbon intensive in their production and have a bigger impact. Yeah, it it will need the calculations like the life cycle analysis because like when when you look into a product, is it environmental environmental friendly or not? Actually, it's not only uh, consider like the end process when you dispose it, but the whole uh, production uh, stage and transportation, everything else. So actually, it's really hard to just simply say a paper one is more environmental than a a plastic straw. Because you really don't know, like the paper is it really uh, from a <coughs> responsible um, producer. So, for my point of view, actually, uh, you can just avoid rather than using other single use as a uh, substitute. Yeah, and nowadays, actually, many design like for the for the lead, you can just drink it directly, and uh, you need not destroy because the well design is just to help you to. Get get rid of the eyes already. Yeah, when you drink it, and the eyes will not uh, 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 stop your way. Yeah. So I do think that maybe uh, 
we can invest more on like how to do the reusable container uh, to suit uh, people needs. As you mentioned, economic scales. And uh, I do think that we have to invest the correct way, like not put so much energy on other single use item, but put more energy on investing how to like share our resources, uh, utilize the uh, reusable one to create a system uh, to borrow and return. And then we will have a white pathway for eliminating our waste. Um, I just want to also get to understand, you know, why are we doing this? Um, Dana, how how big of an issue it is is it in Hong Kong? I mean, uh, you're you're the CEO and co-founder of Plastic Free Seas. What do you see in the beaches of Hong Kong or you know the sea surrounding Hong Kong? Oh, we definitely see a huge amount of straws, food containers, mm. cups, all single-use plastic generally. Um, that's been consistent for years. Even you know people said, oh, when you know. There were fewer straws being given out in the restaurants. Straws aren't a problem anymore. We still find loads of straws washing up on the beach. But these aren't the, the you know, the biggest issue, of course. Mm -hmm. They're all together, though. They do make it a really big problem. Now, the plastic is is an issue in itself, not just because of the disposal, not just because of of any one thing. If you think about health implications as well. So we... You know, we there are so many different things we need to consider. Giving getting rid of plastic is important and very very helpful. That's that's a great start. So this that's why I applaud this. But then, as Leanne has also said, we need not to be switching to another single use material. Mm. It it's going to end up. You know, it it takes energy. It takes water to create these items. We're we're impacting on greenhouse gas emissions all throughout the life cycle of a single use product. So that should be what we're moving away from. And we should be moving towards these re more reusable models, but also bring your own. So a combination of really encouraging people to bring their own when they go to get their takeaway um, and then building up this citywide um, reusable container program. So Leanne mentioned the fantastic coffee cup program that they are partnering on. But this has to be citywide. We can't have little pockets of different um, reusable container programs. We need something that's convenient, that's easy, that's joint, so that you can get your container from anywhere and drop it back off anywhere as well. So this is what we should really be striving for, is citywide reusable programs and a big push towards people bringing their own containers. That would make a really big difference. And I guess, um, Dana, from your point of view, the you, you might not want to oversell the impact on beaches because a lot of the plastic washing up on Hong Kong beaches is not from Hong Kong. I mean, it's 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 not like we're going to put this ban in and a couple of years later, the beaches are all going to be pristine, right? Okay, well, I want to um, just <laughs> mention about that. We look at the beverage bottles. We don't look at all waste washing up on the beach, but we look at beverage bottles, every single beach cleanup that we can mm -hmm. and where they appear to be coming from based on their brand. And we find that the majority is coming from Hong Kong. Okay, so it'll have it'll have an impact. It will have an impact, yeah. But that's not to deny that you know stuff washes up from other areas, uh, other locations. But we have a good 
proportion of what is washing up on our beaches is from Hong Kong. Okay. So it is, so it is we can make a difference. We can make we a difference. We can. Absolutely. I've got an email here from Angie, and Angie says, uh, oh, this is interesting. She says, the single-use alternatives may be a problem. I received my takeaway meal in a new type of container, but when I took it to the recycling center, they said it's not recyclable as it's made from corn and had a corn symbol on the packaging. Um, there's an issue there, but I guess the broader question is, which is better, biodegradable which I assume the corn is and why they're doing it, or recyclable? Uh, I'll jump in there on that. The biodegradable may not be better if you don't have a composting uh, facility that can handle it. So it's a lot of misinformation out there. That's why a lot of companies move towards these compostable, um, corn-based, for example, packaging, and thinking that they were doing the right thing, that they could, ah, oh, just get it composted. But our facility, unfortunately, does not accept them. The same goes for fiber packaging, though, as well. Right now, you cannot put a, a fiber, um, say, bag-ass container into the, with the food waste because it will not get composted. So we really have to understand the end of life um, handling of our materials. And that's how we have to determine what is, is best. Now the fiber containers can be recycled if they're clean, so rinsed and, and dried mm -hmm. with one recycler um, in Hong Kong. It has to be taken to a special location, but at least we have that option. Nobody knows this though. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've just spent let's say 30 bucks on something from a Dup I Don, they give it to me in a biodegradable container. Am I going to like spend a hundred dollars to find the recycling no. center, travel there by bus or, and then drop it off? I mean, that's... if it's a, if it's a corn based one, you're going to throw it into the rubbish bin yeah. and it's going to continue. And you have to, there is no, no other way at the moment. And biodegradable doesn't biodegrade very well when it's in the middle of a landfill, does it? No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, that's how they're built. Not to, make things degrade. Leanne what's, what's, Leanne, what's Greenpeace's take on the biodegradable versus uh, recyclable? Uh, yeah, I think we'll have the same like comment. If biodegradable is not a really good option because there actually is not a standard. Yeah, there's many labels, logo occurring in it biodegradable, but uh, it is hard to say that yeah, to prove that it, it really does in different landfill uh, situation. Right? So I do think that like it might not be a good option and it really costs more and you really don't know how it produced. It's, it, it's kind of green marketing sometimes or even greenwashing for the biodegradable ones. So we are not supporting that. And also for the recycling, uh, actually we uh, we might need extra energy to do it. Like you have to rinse it and then send to the recycle center. Uh, and then most of the time it's done cycling. So uh, it would be great as uh, a better option for us to like we use the item or to bring our own or to support like the any we use system. Uh, we use um, tableware the enterprise are using. Yeah, I think that would be a better option. Yeah, sounds, Dana? Got... Uh, yeah, I just want to jump in. Um, Eat Without Waste. This is a, a research group under ADM Capital Foundation. They did a paper um, on all the different options of how to handle these different uh, packaging materials. And reuse came out the best for greenhouse gas emissions and water usage over recycling over bring your own over composting so there is a lot uh, to be looked at when you consider the reuse mm. 
I guess the biggest thing for me hearing this conversation is actually a lot of people don't even know what to use. Like even with lists like, uh, you know, ban on plastic, you know, I thought biodegradables was the way to go, but apparently it's not. So there's not a lot of, I mean, readily available information. What do we need to do, uh, Dana, or what does the government need to do in terms of setting these kind of information out to people? Actually, do we have not enough information or do we have too much information? Too much? Biodegradable, recyclable, (laughs) you know, uh, no pet, no... ah, too much. I can't figure it all out. I bought one. I, now I can feel like I saved the planet. Dana? Well, what we <laughs> the biggest problem is that it depends on where you are. So some countries, one option may be better than another country. And people come from other countries thinking they should go with this system when they're here, but it doesn't work here. So uh, now that this has come into place, I can see there is a, a great need for a little bit more um, easy to understand communication to be shared. And Plastic Free Seas is going to get on that. Um, mm. But we do, you know, the government does put out a lot of information. They try. Um, it might not always be the, the most convenient and easy to find. But um, let's see how we can make this more clear for the public now that it has be- the bill has passed and it is going to be happening. The same goes holds for you know, munis- municipal solid waste charging. There's so much that the, the public needs to know. All right. Hold that thought, Dana. We're going to uh, take a short break for the news. We'll have uh, Dana uh, still going to be continuing with us. Dana Winograd from Plastic Free Seas. Uh, we're going to say goodbye to Leanne Tam, who's a compa- campaigner with Greenpeace Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us this morning, Leanne. Quick look at the weather. Mainly cloudy with a few showers. Max temperature around 27 degrees. Temperatures will fall to a minimum of 22 tonight. Hallelujah. Uh, windier over the weekend, slightly cooler in the mornings. So looks like it's going to be the weather will improve gradually on Sunday and for the Chung Yung Festival Day when it will be a nice dry day. That is back chatting. And here we go. It's 9.30 and now the news with Carol Musgrave. The UN's humanitarian agency has painted a bleak picture of the situation for displaced people in Gaza, saying they're competing for a critically short supply of water, food and medicine. Charities hope lorries waiting on Gaza's border with Egypt will be allowed in today. One of China's biggest property developers, Country Garden, has denied reports that its founder and chairwoman have fled the country. The company said Yang Guoqiang and his daughter Yang Huoyan were working as usual inside China and described the reports as malicious rumours. The property giant has total estimated debts of about 200 billion US dollars and has been battling to stave off default for several weeks. And an environmental researcher says Hong Kong should cooperate with regions in the Greater Bay Area to recycle car tyres to help reduce deforestation caused by rubber plantations. Kitty Tam from the think tank Civic Exchange says a new report in the journal Nature shows deforestation in Southeast Asia is greater than thought. We'll have more in our news at 10. I'm Dr. Eminem. Seniors, the COVID-19 virus still exists in the community. As the elderly are at higher risk, for the sake of your health, don't take it lightly. Scientific data shows that those with stable health can receive COVID-19 vaccines. Families of the elderly should take them to designated general outpatient clinics, elderly health centers, private clinics, or public hospitals as soon as possible to get COVID-19 jabs in time. 
The new booking system, SmartPlay, of the Leisure and Cultural Services Department will be launched on November 9th to replace Leisure Link. The new My SmartPlay app takes just a few clicks to book leisure facilities, enroll in programs anytime, anywhere, and enjoy personalized service. You can also use it through the internet or self-service stations. Register through the My SmartPlay app, website, or self-service stations. All people must register beforehand. SmartPlay, smart way. It's just a click away. Register now. And we're back on Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work. I'm joined by my main man, Philip Wong, in the studio on a fantastic Friday morning. And we are talking about the Hong Kong ban on single-use plastic waste. But it's going to be a lot more than that. And we're going to get into it. Continuing with us, Dana Winograd is a co-founder and CEO of Plastic Free Seas. And joining us now is Shan Shan Chung, Senior Lecturer and Program Director for the Masters of Science in Environmental and Public Health Management at Hong Kong Baptist University. Good morning. I'm going to go with Professor. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Good morning. Um, we'll give you the uh, the first word on the new the new legislation that's coming in. Um, how quickly do you think the city is going to adapt to this new regulation? These new regulations. Well, honestly, I don't. I'm not very optimistic at that. Um, what I my experience, my 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 personal experience uh, so far has been that. Um, yes, some uh, more uh, upscale uh, cafe. They they have already changed to um, wood uh, single use, still single use uh, cutleries. Um, some have uh, adopted um, some kind of deposit refund uh, uh, plastic cups, uh, which is uh, reusable. Um, but many other fast food shops they they, they still uh, are doing business as usual. And uh, do you think that after the – well, I mean, they're doing business as usual because the law comes into effect in April, but I, after that? Well, I, I really don't know if uh, maybe they they, all, they are aware that there is such a ban. But to them, I, uh, I think – I'm, I'm not part of them, um, but um, I think um, they, they, will, they will think that, oh, yeah, uh, if uh, one day I cannot use it, I will use uh, some other uh, single-use, uh, throw-away, disposable – uh, items, but in the meanwhile, um, let let me just continue to use it. Uh, maybe they have stocks, or maybe they they are just uh, having a, some kind of um, optimistic uh, uh, um, uh, feeling that uh, uh, even in the future, when there is a ban, um, the uh, enforcement law enforcement will not be uh, as serious, as strong, or strict uh, as it sounds. Yeah, because that, that does happen a lot in Hong Kong. Um, who is responsible for enforcing this law? Is it the Food and Environmental Hygiene Department? Um, I think it should be uh, someone in the um, uh, Environment and Ecology Bureau. So I, I'm not too sure of the uh, actual division of work, um, but I think EPD will take a lead. Dana, do you know who's doing the enforcement? No, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I agree. The uh, EPD is overall now how they distribute that is unknown to me anyway at this point they have had a lot of changes in mm. that department over the past year or so okay we've got a caller on line one uh, mark welcome to the show Good morning. Uh, i have a simple question i have a friend who's researching microplastics mm. do either of your experts know what that is about because it sounds very dangerous Ah, okay thank you very much for the question mark uh microplastics i'm glad i already had kids <laughs> <laughs> uh, which which of you would like to take a crack no. at this? Oh, I can. 
I can start. Um, microplastics is simply any plastic that is less than five millimeters in size. So some things start out as microplastics, so tiny little things like microbeads and body care products. And the majority of the plastic is worn down over time. It's breaking into these smaller pieces. So yes, microplastics are a, a big problem. They're uh, it's a bigger problem than we understood because they're so hard to see. But actually, microplastics are breaking down so small that it's becoming like dust. It's in the air we breathe. Even. And the food chain. And, of course, the food chain. And that's that's why I'm making the crack about it. I already had my kids yeah. because there is a global decline in men's sperm count. And they don't know for sure, but one of the uh, one of the suspects on Hercule Poirot's list is microplastics. Um, Shan Shan, uh, will mm-hmm. this ban have an impact on the amount of microplastics getting into our ecosystem? And well, I, 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 there should be some effect if there is a reduction of the use of, uh, especially in the, the disposal of single-use uh, uh, plastic items. However, um, you well, or we must understand that uh, um, uh, this kind of uh, single-use plastic items um, is not um, the only source of microplastics um, uh, in the world. Uh, a lot of um, our, fi- uh, our garments, um, if they are made with uh, artificial fa- uh, fabric, um, they after washing and even the production process, um, there will be a lot of microplastics um, uh, getting into the wastewater, which cannot be filtered uh, at uh, current um, affordable uh, technologies, and, and they, they are just uh, discharged into the ocean. Um, um, not to mention that um, there are a lot of fishing gears, uh, abandoned fishing gears uh, left in the ocean, um, and eventually they will also break, that, break broken down into microplastics. And not to mention that other than microplastics, there is also micro rubber. Mm. Right? Remember, uh, imagine so many cars are running on the roads, um, all the car tires um, they they got wear and tear, and then as uh, um, as uh, uh, plastic free seas um, says. Um, they become dust. So mm-hmm. microplastics, micro rubber, because there's so many different sources um, and um, the, the quantities is just huge. Um, I agree that we need to stop using plastic, even though it may be um, uh, at, at this point, a drop in the ocean at the very beginning. Um, however, I would like to draw to the attention that um, even though it is not plastic, it is not a license to use if it is still single use. Mm. We, we had a little bit of a debate about our biodegradable versus uh, biodegradable versus uh, recyclable before. It's, it sounds like you're you're pretty down on single use, even if it isn't plastic. Even if it is not plastic, because say wood or paper. I mean, even though they they may come from a so-called renewable resource, but if we are actually we, not if. Actually, we are using just far too much, and we are depleting um, the wood resource, even though it is renewable. So what's the point of um, uh, um, uh, uh, getting rid of one evil, but at the same time uh, picking up another one? You just mentioned it briefly, uh, Professor. You know, I think it's going to be difficult to enforce now that you mention it. I mean, who's going to take charge of this and, and who's going to enforce this? Is there enough manpower to do this? The other thing is, um, uh, like in terms of like that, this uh, potential new uh, bill, what other areas should the government need to look at? 
Um, I actually think that uh, instead of banning all the single-use, um, yes, getting rid of the uh, plastic single-use items first, and then um, if they really need substitutes, if they really need uh, single-use items, um, replace it with um, something uh, which is made of non-plastic, but, and at the same time, charge it. Once you put in the charge, and if the charge is deterrent enough, amount of single-use items um, that will be used and disposed of will get dramatically down. Mm. Um, can we talk a little bit about the second phase of this? We had an email from Marcus before. It said, make this apply to airlines. Um, what I have here is that plastic bottles of water or toiletries and disposable earplugs on airplanes will be banned. Um, obviously, <clears throat> I don't really know how that works, especially if the airlines are flying into Hong Kong from other places. Do they have to, like jettison them over the ocean before they land in Hong Kong? Or, or I mean, do either of you have a handle on how the second phase is going to work and what things are going to be implemented? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's hotels, actually. And, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm just taking this. I think it was from an article in the SCMP. They said hotels. Uh, they said airlines as well. Okay. Um, well, if we just look at the hotels, this uh, and that is going to make a really big impact. And a lot of the hotels have already switched away from these single-use items. Now, stopping them from giving away these items, they have to charge. So just like we were just discussing, putting a fee on things makes people think twice before buying them. So you can't, you can get a tube of toothpaste and a, a toothbrush in a hotel in the future if you pay for it, not to be given away. Now, airlines is a whole nother story. Like you mentioned, Airlines flying into Hong Kong, airlines flying out of Hong Kong. I, we can't even get the recycling sorted on that. It depends on your destination. Um, so I think that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Mm -hmm. I know when I was when um, I was in a hotel. For, now oh. for the airline, I, I think I can say a few words because mm. uh, previously I, I was um, um, a consultant of a uh, local airline. So um, usually the airline waste, uh, air, in-flight airline waste, um, they probably. It depends. Uh, if if they want to dispose, uh, for say, if if a flight from a, coming from, uh, say, uh, Singapore uh, flying into Hong Kong, uh, because it is um, relatively short haul, it is possible that um, <clears throat> um, um, some local laws may ban or uh, require special handling of uh, overseas waste of this kind. So um, the airline may take the waste back. Mm. to the uh, home country, home, home destination, before disposing it. Uh, this also applies to uh, food items. Um, even if food items, they have to be get rid of, um, they will be uh, treated as a kind of quarantined um, um, waste, uh, which cannot be mixed with other waste um, uh, when, when handling. Kind of like if your, your, your airline flies in from Hong Kong to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, they've got to lock up all the liquor. <laughs> <laughs> and then they can only open it again once they take off. I mean, I guess that would be how they would do it. Yeah, Philip? Yeah, I just, uh, well, I just want to spend the last few minutes on, I think it's a very uh, important topic relating to what we're talking about, education. I think if we're just thinking about long term, you know, we have to educate the students, the children about being socially responsible. So my question for both of you, and I guess let's start with uh, Dana, do you think we're doing enough in terms of educating uh, the children? Well, we at Plastic Free Seas are trying to do our best to educate. So we focus on reduction and we go into schools in both English and Cantonese and, and try and 
encourage this understanding of the need to reduce. It's not about we can't continue on. It's it's resource depletion. And there, you know, there's so many factors and that it is the most responsible thing to do is to try and reduce our waste. So whether there can be more of that, I mean, other countries have done a much better job of this through their education system, not having somebody come in separate. Mm. Actually, you know, the EDB should be building this sort of education into their into their frameworks from a very young age, from nursery school, about how to handle your waste, how to reduce. And that's how you see great results from and behavior change with, amongst the public. And what about Professor? What do you, what do you think about this? Well, um, I'm in an education environment, all right? So uh, my, edu- <laughs> my profession is education. Mm. And I can tell you that, well, um, I'm, I'm not too sure um, how uh, in-depth and how uh, uh, widespread um, the general education um, syllabus uh, uh, has on this type of single-use plastic or or resource uh, uh, conservation uh, concepts. But um, I, I I would like to cite you uh, a personal experience. Now I'm in a tertiary education institute, mm-hmm. and every day, every day, and then all, all my colleagues, they have doctoral degree, master's degree, and and the very least, university graduates. I saw many items of recyclables, plastic bottles, uh, paper, clean paper, thrown into the rubbish bin. Mm -hmm. Even though on our campus, there are many recycling bins, okay? Do yeah. we, didn't we educate our uh, university community to recycle? There are posters everywhere. They just, <laughs> we, they... we, we, have, we, we even have set waste reduction goals on our university. Mm. But yeah. do, they, do they, even if they know, do they bother to change? Mm. I mean, knowledge is one thing, but having mm. it really settle into people's behavior patterns exactly. is something completely different, right? I, mean, I don't think they don't know. They mm-hmm. just don't want to change. Yeah. I mean, and it, it is strange, too. I mean, in places where people do a lot of littering, they bring in a lot of no littering, you have to provide a lot of rubbish bins. Otherwise, you know, so people, people aren't going to carry things around. But then they get used to not throwing things out. Then you can take away some of the rubbish bins, and things don't get dirtier because people have, you know, had it instilled in them that they should hold on to it until they can get rid of it in an appropriate manner. We're not there yet with recycling, are we? If you, you carry something around for a minute and it, it's, it's empty... You're like, oh, I've been carrying it too long. You know, I should recycle it. Ah, but here's a rubbish bin. I'm just going to get rid of it. I mean, it's going to take some time for that behavior to change. Is, is, is it going to require a generational change? Like, is it like we've given up on old people because they're not going to change. So we just have to start with the kids and it'll take us 20 years to get there. Is that too I, pessimistic? Well, no. starting with the kids, of course, is the cor- in the correct direction. Mm. But what I would like to emphasize is that education uh, may work for, say, like 50% of the uh, population, of the young uh, kids' population. But then what about the remaining 50%? They need more than just education to actually motivate them to have the behavioral change. All right? Something like charge mm-hmm. or something like uh, uh, both carrot and steak, or even some, sometimes just changing of the practice. For example, now um, what I'm still noticing, and, and that's why I was so pessimistic, is that if I ask for uh, uh, a takeaway, even though I, can, uh, I, I get my container and, and uh, uh, give them my own food container, they still put in the single-use cutlery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I still give it to me. 
Yeah. So it seems to me it's by default that they have to give something uh, back to the customer, single-use uh, cutlery to the customer, no, no matter and whatever. Yeah, like the default practice mm. must be changed as well. So we need all fronts, uh, changes in all fronts of this uh, uh, consumption, uh, single-use uh, uh, cutlery, single-use item uh, supply chain. Well, massive change in human behavior almost always requires a multi-pronged approach. Mm. And we uh, talked about some of those today. We were fortunate to have on the show uh, Dana Winograd, the co-founder and CEO of Plastic Free Seas, and Shan Chan Chung, Senior Lecturer and Program Director for the Masters of Science in Environmental and Public Health Management at Hong Kong Baptist University. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. All right, we're back on Back Chat with Andrew Work and Philip Wong, and we are welcoming to the show Jeff Martin. Jeff Martin is a member of the Executive Committee of the Hong Kong-China Paragliding Association. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Did you, did you fly in to uh, work from home today? <laughs> I would have loved to. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't end up that way. You can't quite fly into an office building. But, no, um, true, 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 yeah. true. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, taking the Mickey here. But uh, Jeff, I, there might be some people who don't know what paragliding is. I know it seems amazing, but I, I love it when I see you guys up in Saikung doing your thing. Um, a friend of mine just did his first. He's, he's a wheelchair bound, uh, kind of famous in Hong Kong, Ajmal Samuel, and he has recently taken up paragliding. But can you just tell people what it is? That's fantastic. Um, uh, paragliding originated with a bunch of French skydivers who got bored, um, uh, couldn't afford their aircraft fees for, for, for launching. And so instead, they took their parachutes up to the top of the hill, ran off the side and uh, started flying down to practice their landings that way. Um, and as the equipment improved, the uh, glide ratio got better, the sink rate got slower, and as the wind blows up the hill, if the wind blows up the hill faster than you're falling down the hill, then you actually manage to stay up and glide. And so um, it was this merger of the sport of parachuting and gliding. And so, um, yeah, uh, today we get to uh, run off the side of the hill and we can potentially stay up for an hour, two hours, three hours and, and just soar around sailing in the sky. Two or three hours in the air. Wow, I always thought it was a, you ten know. minutes. <laughs> yeah, it was ten, fifteen minutes, two hours. That's really, I guess, fun. <laughs> and these are and, and, indeed, and yeah. and these are fixed and, wing, and, right? And, um, uh, uh, fixed in in a nominal sense. Um, it, it is much like a uh, parachute canopy, um, but it is quite a bit larger. It's about two or three times the area of, of a traditional parachute canopy. Right. Um, so nominally fixed wing, but it's, it's, it's very soft and floppy too. Okay, because I mean, I, I didn't want people to confuse paragliding with base jumping, where you use a parachute and jump mm -hmm. off of something high, which is a different... This, this is one that has so, like a metal yeah. frame that you hold on to and you're kind of stretched out behind it and you've got wings, right? Um, no metal frame. It's 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 uh, that would be hang gliding, oh, um, okay. which, which 
really see a lot of in in Hong Kong. It's it's a very related discipline, and usually around the world, you see clubs that uh, handle both uh, hand gliding and and the paragliding, which is is the more um, parachute style one. Mm. Um, it, it from base jumping in that the, the um, uh, paraglider is fully inflated when we go off the side of the hill. Um, so so we're not falling, we're not jumping. Um, uh, you could look at the reverse way that um, a base jump is like a paraglider with a really, really bad launch configuration. <laughs> okay. Well, okay, I have to admit, I think, I think I was confusing hang gliding and paragliding. So good. I'm glad we've got that clear. Mm. Now, uh, on to the main topic, registration. Has the Hong Kong government not required registra- registration before? Is this a new thing or are they modifying an old registration? Um, so it's a new thing. What had... Um happened was about two years ago um there was a investigation by the office of the ombudsman into uh civil aviation's regulation of of paragliding and uh the ombudsman office came up uh last year with with eight recommendations um uh four of them were were implemented straight away by civil aviation um but uh uh, the four others um, were, were something that uh, had no regulatory basis for for, for civil aviation to to act. Um, so back um, a few years ago, both paragliders and drones did not require any name registration. The ombudsman recommended it for paragliding. For drones, they created a new piece of legislation that's a whole 68 pages long to get that to become um, a mandatory effort. Um, but that took several years to deliver that of, of, of planning and reporting and consultation. Um, Civil Aviation really wanted to um, move, move a bit faster on this. And so um, what happened on Wednesday is the Transport Secretary um, wanted to showcase some of the hard work Civil Aviation has done. Um, the focus here is that going forward, Civil Aviation wants to um, provide greater empowerment and support to paragliding organizations such as ours um, to do community self-regulation. And part of that is the real name registration of pilots. And so we'll, we'll be working with our members on a voluntary basis. We'll be working with um, just the general paragliding public. The, membership of our association isn't mandatory so um other paragliders in the community civil aviation have asked us to uh offer registration to um them as well um and so we'll offer that and and as people opt into the registration scheme we'll keep a um uh register uh, and and that will enable civil aviation and and us and uh, and so on to uh, have better communication with the wider paragliding community. Oh, Jeff, I'm, I'm a little bit, um, I guess, surprised <laughs> for the fact that, you know, the trainers previously, I guess, don't have registration. I don't, I don't want to put you in the spot. I mean, it's a fun sport that I really want to try. I see a lot of paragliding in, I guess, hotspots in Sheko and Lantau. Andrew mentioned Saikung as well. But I would like, you know, the trainer coming with me to be certified. Um, I mean, our... Right now, are a lot of the, you know, those trainers certified and do they get like, you know, training and things like that? 
And indeed, and and that's a bit of a different story. So what we heard on Wednesday was about registration of mm. just paraglider pilots and equipment in general. So uh, all all the participants in this sport. Um, for about two or three years now, civil aviation have issued permits to um, uh, paragliding instructors and also um, tandem uh, ride operators. So uh, if you're looking for a instructor or a uh, tandem flight, then um, civil aviation on their website have a list of of operators that have permits from civil aviation and strongly recommend that if you're looking for an instructor or a tandem flight that you consult that list. It's a little bit hard to find, but if you go to our website, hkpa.net, we directly link to that list from our front page. Now, to get that permit from civil aviation, um, what happens is that uh, an instructor or a tandem operator needs to provide evidence of qualifications that they have qualified as an instructor or they have qualified as a tandem pilot. Um, they have to present some of their uh, safety management plans and and um, take some tests about aviation law and, and so on. And so, um, while there has in the past been people operating outside that, um, there is the permit system uh, from civil aviation. Uh, the details for operators are, are there. And, and as you correctly point out, it's, it's, it's really important for one's sense of safety um, to, to uh, uh, perhaps not go with an unlicensed operator. Mm. So, so, Jeff, your organization is going to be administering the registration program. Is that correct? Um, at the regulation doesn't allow um, civil aviation to pick and choose which organization. So uh, there is the Hong Kong China Paragliding Association, uh, my organization, that will uh, offer the registration service. There is one other organization that civil aviation are working with that offer the registration as, as well. Um, do, you so have to turn those, it, do you turn those records over to the government then? Are they, are they kind of just asking you to be their administrators? And do you, do you give them that data later? So uh, we will need to um, provide some amount of data to civil aviation because they will issue the individual registration numbers. And so um, one one of the small details that, that we're working um, on on right now is is the uh, informed consent about the information release. So in, in terms of when people opt in for registration, we'll make it very clear um, uh, what data is being transferred and to who. Got it. So you collect it, you give it to the government, they issue the registration to the individual. Is that the path? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. Sir. And uh, so, so within that, what, what happens if I'm paragliding and I'm not registered and a policeman walks up and is like, you know, I, I land on the ground and some policeman walks up and goes, show me your registration. He flies away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean well, uh, are there going to be yeah. penalties or are there going to be... You know, any- um, uh, that's that's not within the framework at, at, at the moment. Largely, okay. um, where, where there's penalties in, in Hong Kong aviation law for paragliding at the moment is basically don't be reckless, don't be negligent, mm. um, and and then um, that that sort of implies uh, uh, following genu- generally accepted rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but as as long as you're not doing something wild out there, um, then you know, 
people, if, if you make a mistake, people just want to work with you and correct that, point you in the right direction. Mm. Um, once, once things get to a stage where, where people are looking at prosecutions or, or, or fines, that's obviously gone about three or four steps too far down a road that we want to, uh, we don't want to go down. So we, we, we just want to be really proactive and have um, uh, increased and earlier communication from both civil aviation and, and, and the paragliding organizations. All right. Uh, and if things do go, things develop further, Jeff, we'll have to ba- ask you back on the show. Thank you very much to Jeff Martin, member of the executive committee of the Hong Kong China Paragliding Association. Uh, that's been our back chat for today. We're going to be back. We're taking a holiday on Monday. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I guess everybody can sleep in. I know most of our listeners are ready to go on Monday morning, but you can sleep in, wait for Tuesday when we will be back with Jim Gould and Car Ha. Oh, I'd like to thank Philip Wong. Great job today, Philip. Thank Way you. Way to go. Uh, I'd also like to thank our producer today, who is Raphael Blet de la France, and our sound engineer, James Lung, making us sound great. This has been Back Chat.